And because of elders, I want to continue that line of thought that Dr. Young began last week. And if I could invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, just a couple of, um, couple of uh, well, actually more than a couple, but uh, what I really want to do tonight is, is just talk with you, share with you from the Scripture about, uh, about the scintillating subject of church government. Um, and let me tell you why I really do think it's important. Because um, the Scripture teaches that the church is the primary entity through which God fulfills His plan. It's the primary entity through which the mandate to make and multiply disciples has been given. It's to the church that the sacraments have been given. It's to the church that, that Christ promised to build the church so that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Um, it's The church is identified as God's called out body. It occupies a very unique and important place. Christ is coming back not after brick and mortar, but He's coming back after a body and a bride that He has purchased by His own blood. So church is very important in the, in the economy or the plan or the purpose of God. It's the primary instrument through missions. It's the primary, not the soul, but the primary means through which the gospel is propagated and spread. It's the primary instrument through which people are called to life, faith, and repentance. Not the sole instrument, but it's designed by God, by Christ, to be the primary instrument. Um, so for that reason, church is important. Often in our 21st century American understanding, which is highly individualistic um, and kind of um, self-fulfilling and self-promotive, we think of church in terms of what I can get out of it. Uh, of what it does for me and what it does for my family. But that really is a foreign understanding to the Scripture. We import that understanding onto the Scripture. God gave the church as a primary instrument through which He unveils His plan and His purpose. He birthed the church as the primary means through which His wisdom is displayed, through which His grace and His mercy is displayed. So the church is always called to be counter-cultural, not offensive. In fact, I, I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 when He sent the first apostles out. He said that they're to be harmless as doves, but they're to be wise as serpents. So we're to be wise but harmless in terms of our, our bearing and our demeanor. But the church reflects the grace and wisdom of God. It reflects the values of the kingdom. It reflects the nature and the character of Christ. And so the church is of primary importance in terms of God's plan and God's purpose. And its importance is emphasized in 1 Timothy chapter 3, principally in uh, verse uh, 14 and especially verse 15, as there, there are four key terms that are mentioned here that I would just very, very quickly call your attention to. Let's start in verse 14. Uh, Paul writing Timothy in this pastoral epistle says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. And here's the four key terms. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Those four key terms highlight the importance of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Four key identities that, that define the reality of the church. It's, first of all, uh, a household, which in terms of uh, Scripture, I always approach this with fear and trembling. 
which um, in terms of the Scripture, that word is, just as I feared, that word is oikos. It means family. It also means a dwelling place. So the church is a dwelling place, a habitation of God. It's, um, if you will, it, it has the connotation of an extended family. Many of you have been on missions trips and there are language barriers. But the reality is that the relationship that we have Christ with Christ transcends the, the language barriers. There is a, a sense in which we are really brothers and sisters in Christ. The language is different. The cultures are very, very different. But there is a sense in which we belong to the same family. We're united together because of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we share a common bond that Paul identifies here as being the household of God. We're members of this same house, members of this same family. And the scripture uses that family analogy in Romans chapter 8 to say that the, the same spirit that Christ has poured out, the same spirit that Christ has given, the spirit of adoption, if you will, that we are members of that family, has been, has been given to each one of us. The same spirit of adoption. We all have a measure and a portion of the spirit, the spirit of the family. And the family spirit is molding us and making us more like the Father who is the Savior and Lord over that family. There's a, another key term here, and that is it's described as the church of the living God. The church of the living God. That means the church belongs principally to God. doesn't belong to me. doesn't belong to you. doesn't belong to the elders of Gracie Van. doesn't belong to Dr. Young or any member of the staff. It is, it is God's church. And it's the habitation, the dwelling place of His Spirit. He is alive and present in and among His people. There's a, there's a relational community aspect of the church in which God uniquely walks and inhabits among His people. John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1 had this vision and he saw the risen and reigning Christ in all of His resurrected glory. And where was this risen Christ? He was walking among the churches of Asia. He was present in power to convict and to protect and to propagate the witness of the gospel through the worship and witnesses of those church. So the church belongs to God in terms of a family, but it also belongs to God because it's His by ownership. He purchased it. Acts chapter 20 says that that we've been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we belong to Him. He, he, um, he has redeemed us and brought us into real living fellowship and relationship with Himself. And then Paul also says the church is the pillar of the truth. And I just call your attention real quick to the word pillar. You know, that sounds very southern, doesn't it? It's what you sleep on at night is a pillar. Um, well, this is, this is a column in a building. And, uh, and the word is stulos, stulos. It means that which upholds, that which supports. And so the church is a household. It's the living God, and it is a pillar of the truth. Now, it's a pillar of the truth. And let me go ahead and tell you what the fourth term is. It's a buttress or foundation of the truth. So it's a, it's a house, 
It's alive. It's a pillar and foundation of the truth. And it's a pillar and foundation of the truth in terms of its proclamation. That is, the gospel that's been given to us to proclaim that salvation is in no other but Christ, that it's by grace through faith in Christ alone to God's glory alone, that Jesus Himself said, I'm not a way but the way, the truth and the life. That's the message that's been entrusted to us in the proclamation. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth in terms of the the revelation that has been entrusted to it, that is, the, the Scripture itself. Second um, Timothy uh, chapter 1, Paul is about to be martyred. In fact, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm, the, my departure's at hand. I am done. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness and so on. And he says to Timothy, he says, Keep the deposit which I've committed to you. He's talking about the revelation of God's truth, the revealed truth of God, that body of content and doctrine that God has given to us. So the church is a pillar and ground of the truth in proclamation, in revelation, and in administration. And by administration, I'm referring to a couple of things in terms of its sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and uh, in terms of its actual uh, government. That is, how the church is organized. Now, Dr. Young touched on that last week. And it's that that I really want to emphasize just in the final few minutes that we have together. We would all agree that... I think we would all agree with what's been said so far. Now, I don't think there'd be any, there'd be any confusion about anything that's been said that the church is the pillar and ground of truth, that's the household of the living God, and so on and so on, that it's been given a message, it's been given a content, uh, it's been given uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We may have minor disagreements over the administration, the subject, the timing, and so on, but clearly baptism and the Lord's Supper is a given. It's been committed to the church. We don't have any problem with that, but listen, think about this for just a moment. If Christ purchased the church by His blood, and he's given gifts to the church. And he's given a gospel to the church. Why would he not also prescribe a manner of its government and organization? That is, how the church should be structured. Why would he leave that to guesswork? Why would he leave the structure of the church to independent thought, to community consensus, to cultural ideals? To the, to the whims and fancies of men and women in every generation. I would submit to you that, that in Titus, this is where Dr. Young was last week in Titus chapter 1 in talking about elders, that just as he purchased the church and just as he has a plan and a purpose for the church, he has also prescribed a government for the church as well to propagate the message, to fulfill the mandate, to safeguard the deposit that's been entrusted, that he's not left that to chance. But that's as much a part of his plan and his purpose as the very nature of salvation itself. And so the, the church is a pillar and a ground of the truth, proclamation, revelation, administration, but also in its government. And so while this is not the kind of thing that, you know, it's not marriage, it's not money, it's not time management... It's not all the things that really excite us because it relates to us. 
It's about real stuff. It's what we call practical teaching. But this is just as important as the rest because it's a part of the revelation that God has given us in His Word. It's a part of the content of how the church is to be governed and how the church is to be structured. So if I can manage to... um, If I can manage to erase this, let me just point out a couple of things real quick, if I may, about what the pillar and the ground of truth looks like in terms of how the church is to be governed and how the church is to be organized. Look look over at um, chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3. I have to turn my page, maybe you don't. But the first part of chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You may have in your translations um, elder, pastor, some other substitute. uh, You may have, if you have a King James Version, I even think it's the word bishop. But but the word is um, episkopos. And it relates to the function of the eldership. The, the word elder, Dr. Young drew this or put it on the board last week, is um, presbyteros. Should be an R in there. Presbyteros. That's the title. Here's the function. Oversight. Spiritual oversight. And in this this oversight function, there is a plurality. It's not one, but it's many. And the reason why there's plurality of oversight in in the, the, the government organization of the church is to safeguard it, to secure it against sin and depravity, to uh, provide a multitude of counselors, and so on and so on. But quite frankly, one is in terms of gifts. Because not any one man, not any two men, not any three men have all the gifts requisite in terms of church leadership. So in his wisdom, there was a plurality of apostles. You could go all the way back to Numbers chapter 11. There was a plurality of leaders um, in in, uh, Moses' administration in the wilderness and so on. And um, in Acts 14, in Acts 15, in Acts 16, in Acts chapter 20, in uh, Titus chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 5, elders are always plural. There's a plurality of people who lead. And the characteristics, the requirements for those who lead principally have to deal with character and not personality, not charisma. This is not like an election for mayor. This is not like an election for president. You know, the historians say that one of the keys in John Kennedy's election over Richard Nixon was his being very telegenic, that Richard Nixon came off looking dour. He came off looking heavy-browed, and he perspired profusely. But John Kennedy was very smooth. He was very handsome. He was a very charismatic man. If you've read the the book, uh, Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he makes the case that for the first 150 years of American life, that character was the uh, requisite of success 
in life. But in more recent terms, actually World War II and after, it's been personal charisma and personality that's carried the day. Well, in God's wisdom, he says it's not a personality contest. It's not a result of magnetism and charisma. But it's a, it's a, it's a function of character, of godliness, of a man following Christ and that being worked out in his life. Uh, depending on your translation, in First Timothy chapter 3, those opening seven verses, some translations have like 15, I think, characteristics. And only one or two of them have to do with actually skills, with, with doing something. The rest of them reflect an inner attitude, an inner disposition, an attitude of faithfulness and humility, of, uh, of kindness, of wisdom, of steadiness, of even-handedness, um, family life, and so on. It, it relates to the interior life of a man. And that shows up in the life of a congregation. He's not identified because he's necessarily head and shoulders taller above everyone else or because he has this great outgoing personality or any of the other things that we deem as being very, very important in terms of leadership. But it's that inner quality of being a disciple of Christ, of being yoked with Him, of being submissive and obedient to Him. And it's in the life of the church that the realities of the gospel are demonstrated before the world. So, not only is it a plurality of leaders, many, and not only is it a matter of character, but it's also a matter of being male. Now, let me tell you, I'm going to pick up just in the five minutes that are left. Let me just real real quickly tell you why I believe that the Scripture teaches that, that leadership in Christ's church is principally, if not exclusively, male. I'm going to give you three quick reasons and just an overview. Because of creational intent. Because leadership in Christ's church reflects original creational intent. Whenever Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce, whenever Paul addresses the subject of marriage and divorce, he always goes back to creation. Because even though there's been a fall and that creational pattern has been twisted by the fall and by the implications of sin, that creational pattern remains intact. And the creational pattern is recognized by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 11 and elsewhere. And the, the, the creational pattern is this, in that the male in the garden was given the spiritual responsibilities to protect and to prescribe. He was given the responsibilities of spiritual leadership prior to Eve's coming into existence. In other words, God says to Adam, not to the woman, to tend and keep the garden. And it was to him that the prohibition was given the, the, the positive side, you can eat of every tree in the garden. Eat till you pop if you want. Except there's one tree that you cannot eat. And that command was given to Adam in, uh, uh, to exert spiritual leadership in the context of the garden. And the man failed in his spiritual leadership responsibilities. But that pattern has never been abrogated. It's never been annulled. Sin has not changed it. 
Genesis chapter 1 describes a cultural mandate in which we're to exercise dominion and, and so on and so on. Sin has not annulled that mandate. It's only twisted it, but it's not annulled it. So there's a creational intent that's to be recognized in the redemptive realities of the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth, as a witness to the culture, as a witness to an unconverted world, if you will, the wisdom of God in creational realities and creational patterns. But there's there's also a redemptive um, pattern, not just the creational intent, but a redemptive pattern. Pronouns, personal pronouns, are always masculine in the Old Testament in references to both God and angels. When um, angels appeared, they appeared principally as male. Why is that? They could have just as likely come as female. Why male? Because of creational patterns, because of creational intent, because they were the representatives. representatives. When Christ comes incarnate, He came in the likeness of what? A man. And why is that? Not only because of creational pattern and a a, a creational intent redemptive pattern, but look at um, at, uh, Romans 5, 12 through 19. Adam had a unique place and Christ has a unique place as representative heads of now a fallen humanity and a converted humanity. I feel like I'm just pummeling you with information. But hang on. Creational intent, redemptive pattern, and um, and the second is because of Trinitarian Trinitarian realities. What do I mean by Trinitarian realities? Now brace yourselves. I'm not going to spell this on the board because I'm not sure I can. But within the Trinity, there is absolute equality between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one God, three persons within that Godhead, and there is no inferiority within the Godhead. The Son is not inferior to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not inferior to the Son. They are equal before one another. But within that Trinity, there is a... Functional submission in which the Son willingly gives up His equality with God, Philippians 2, and comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. The Son willingly says that I've come to do the will of the Father. The Son willingly says, not my will, O God, not my will, Father, but your will be done. It's the Son who in the end will say to the Father over a renewed and redeemed cosmos, here am I and the children whom you've given me. So within the the functional realities of the church, male leadership or male headship is not based on superiority and inferiority. It's not because the man's superior to the woman in no shape, form, or fashion. And where that's been communicated, that's wrong and should be repented of. Because both bear the image of God. Both created uniquely in the image of God. Both necessary in the plan and purpose of God. Both necessary for the fulfillment 
of the mandate that God gave at the end of Genesis chapter 1. But just as there is a Trinitarian reality for functional purposes, so there is functional purposes in every sphere of life. There are functional purposes in home, in church, in government, in school, and every other place. And therefore the church, however, is to be unique in the witness that it bears, in the wisdom that it communicates, and in the gospel realities that it communicates to the world. So if the church is these four things, if it's the house of God, and if it's the church of the living God, and if it's the pillar and buttress of the truth, we take as God's redeemed and uniquely purchased people our cues for how we worship and what we witness, the content of what we say, and the sacraments that are administrated, not from a fallen world, but from the revelation that God has given to us. And we ought to do that winsomely. We ought to do it graciously. We ought to do it with great kindness and great humility. But at the end of the day, we believe that God has greater wisdom in life than a fallen world. And let me tell you one final thing that that I, I, I can't prove this, but I strongly suspect this, and, and, I, and I reason this out from God's Word, that part of the push and pull over female elders or male elders, part of the push and pull of that, is going back all the way back to the garden and turning upside down the wisdom of God. That's what drives the homosexual agenda. That's what drives so much of the cultural dynamic in which we live, is rebelling against the wisdom of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. And so where does that stop? Do not the people who are called by His name who are inhabited by His Spirit, who are sealed by His Spirit, who are purchased by His blood, who are called by His name, who are called into fellowship, who are called out of darkness into light, do we not embrace a different set of values? Do we not embrace a different wisdom? Do we not submit to a different Lord? So really what comes down to is not a gender thing so much as it's embracing what I think the Scripture clearly teaches and refusing to rebel and capitulate to cultural consensus and rather embracing what God has clearly outlined in the Scripture. That's a staggering, staggering verse in First Samuel chapter 2 which the Lord says to... Uh, to Eli through, I believe it's through Samuel. He says, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who treat me lightly, I will not esteem. And so the church must esteem her Lord. She must honor the wisdom of God, even though at times it rubs against the grain and flies against convictional wisdom. Well, let's close there and we'll pray. Dr. Young will pick up next week with uh, the theme of elders. Our Father, as we bow before you tonight, I pray that, that we would, from our hearts, bow before the truth of your word and 
where there are areas of honest disagreement, we would uh, we would strive to be charitable and peaceable people. And uh, yet, where the Scripture is so clear, we pray that the grace of the Holy Spirit would constrain our hearts to bow before your throne willingly. And we pray for the continued leadership of Gracie Van through the selection of elders who will lead us, who will uh, govern us and guide us according to the truth of your word. Grant that we might be um, at peace with one another, at peace with you, and unified in our desire to honor the living Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.